0: Today alongside me is a special guest because as I've been doing this podcast, it's been mainly with people in America and Jacob Wolke from Wolke Farms is down in Australia and I've been following him for some time. So it's it's awesome to, to talk and, and finally hear your story. So thank you for joining. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So I guess to get started, yeah, because um, I know yours is relatively new, correct? Walkie Farm.
1: Yeah, my wife and I got into it in 2019. Is when we sort of started taking a keen interest in you know, where our food came from, and we were dissatisfied with local food systems, which is which is another whole interesting thing that I've you know I've almost come full circle on it. You know, I. I wanted grass-fed beef that hadn't been uh, drenched and medicated and, you know, I had some requirements that I was looking for for food for my family and I couldn't find it uh, anywhere. I went to the local butchers, I went to the local farmer's markets, I did a bit of research online to find someone local, couldn't find it anywhere. So started thought I'd do it myself and now that I'm, you know, four years into doing it, I've met so many fantastic farmers at scale that do know a beautiful product uh, but there was just there was never a conduit to actually meet them you know if, if i could have actually met one of those farmers and bought the product for myself i probably would have never started farming so and i really enjoy it so on one hand i'm, I'm glad i could never f- find them but you know i used to talk about how hard this food was to source it and in some cases that's true but there is actually an abundance of amazing food out there but these producers unfortunately are just dumping their stuff into commodity markets because there's no Uh, easy way to get it out there
0: Hmm. all right so there's actually two really awesome pieces that i would want to go with so the first one just going back to before you even started what did that look like whenever you you wanted to make that decision to finally start a a farm and did you just have a game plan or did you already have land and you just kind of dove in what did that look like
1: yeah sure so i've been uh, like my family we're merchants, we're bricks and mortar retail, and have been here in Australia for three generations, selling belt buckles and belly button rings, basketball cards, CDs, DVDs, T-shirts, Levi jeans, you know wh- whatever we could. Like we, we've got a saying in our family: all we care about is can we buy it for one dollar and sell it for two? You know we'll we'll sell carpet, it doesn't matter, and. When I started becoming interested in in food uh, and where my food came from and how it was produced, and I, you know, I, I found guys like Justin Rhodes and and Joel Salatin and these people on online, these personalities that made it so romantic and wholesome. And uh, not only was the actual food production side of it really important to me, but seeing those sorts of personalities and how they took their family along for the journey. And, you know, the, the sort of social impacts that came out of that, I just thought this is oh, Jacob, awesome. you know, really I bad. want to be involved with that. Uh, and my father me, owned, uh, owns a 100 acre property, just 10 minutes out of town. Uh, and, you know, it's more of a hobby block than anything in, in this part of the world. 100 acres is a is a postage stamp size of a property. Uh, so dad would normally just buy 40 steers and background them on the farm for most of the season and then sell them off into the commodity market and use them to make some pocket money and keep the grass down and i said to dad you know could i could i put 20 chickens in a caravan so i stole all my dad's chickens he used to have a little chook shed where he'd grow all his own eggs but i i uh, acquired his chickens and i put them in a literally a caravan with a solid floor still had you know everything in it and i made some little perches and i'd let them out every day and i'd muck it out fill the bottom up with straw and it took me a while to uh, it was a, it took me hours and hours to move it whenever i wanted to move it every couple of days and we got 20 hereford heifers we got 20 head of cattle and i started moving them around with polywire and the idea was to get eggs for my wife and i and our new son otto and at the end of raising these heifers uh, we would process one to put in the freezer and the rest we would sell off into the market and we processed one and gave some to friends and family and and people were like this is actually really great beef jake and i thought you know it didn't take me long to crunch the numbers and think well if i'm processing doing all this effort and doing one i may as well do two and cover my costs and sell some to my friends and uh you know the rest is history I, i got really swept up in it you know like i said we've been merchants for a long time but there's something really uh really engaging about actually producing and not just selling that I'm, I'm really enjoying, and it's sort of got to the point now where, you know, arrogantly, it almost feels like a little bit of a calling because I've met so many people in the last four years that have uh, health issues that are being uh, mitigated and healed and fixed and repaired because of their environment and their inputs, and a lot of those inputs are what I'm growing for them. You know it's it's a different it's a different feeling than selling someone a bicycle you know i, I had one customer recently that during her pregnancy she had violent uh, morning sickness i can't remember the phrase for it but it was clinically diagnosed as this really violent morning sickness and the only thing she could eat without violently throwing up was my beef raw so she would come in start of the wow. week and, and stock up her fridge with all my beef and she'd go she couldn't even eat it cooked she had to eat my beef raw And she's like, thank you so much for producing this because without this, I'd just be vomiting all the time and I wouldn't be able to eat and my baby wouldn't be growing properly. You know, that's a, you know, I've sold some bicycles to people that are happy about it, but it's a different thing.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure, especially after those nights and days to where you're working extra hours, there's, I mean, with just working on the farm, there's just so much unpredictability that happens that you have to take care of. And so I know in those moments, whenever you hear, hear those stories that it makes it all that worth much more worth it too. Yeah, definitely. And then I guess to continue on to that story too. So you started with the heifers and then adding in the chickens. Cause I know now you've got pigs, you've got a much larger operation. Um, yeah. If you could just go in the chronological order of how you got to where you're at now. Cause I also see that I think you're in your, your butcher shop too right now.
1: Yeah. I'm in the butchery right now. So it my family i'm in partnership with my parents we own a bicycle store in town here and inside the bicycle shop is a cafe that's open seven days a week and does the breakfast lunch menu um like a cooked breakfast and when i when i was starting to sell a little bit of beef on the farm uh, or through the farm business i thought you know i could get some more chickens because chickens just looked like a no-brainer watching salatin and the rest of them i thought i could go and get a thousand chickens and lay all the eggs for our own cafe, and I'd have a customer that'd buy, you know, I think we, at that stage, we're probably going through seven or eight boxes of eggs a week, which is boxes, 15 dozen, 180 eggs. So we're going through maybe, you know, 800 eggs a week or something like that. So I built the uh, the, the next thing I did after those first few chickens, and then the cattle was, I uh, built a big X wing and filled it up with chooks and got my egg license, egg stamp. You know, there's obviously all these regulatory hoops you have to jump through, uh, which is, The absolute worst part of the job started selling eggs and, you know, interestingly, there's been so many local pasture raised egg producers start and finish within the last four years. Like they started after me and they've already thrown the towel in because of, it looks so easy on the back of an envelope, you know, buy a chicken for 20 bucks feed it 40 grams of feed a day, which costs you 80 cents a kilo or, you know, whatever it is. And you get an egg and you can sell it for a dollar. Like it, it makes so much sense. It's so easy. And, and, you know, no one can do it uh, long-term. So I did the chickens and then obviously we kept increasing cattle as needed. Uh, I bought a couple of pigs. I put two pig, two or three pigs in the dam paddock. We weren't rotating them. We weren't feeding them grain. We were just feeding them house scraps. You know, I, I, I went to an orchard and uh, crawled around on the floor uh, with four wheelie bins and filled up the wheelie bins with all the rotten apples and I brought them back and fed them to my pigs and these pigs were just for home use because we are eating a bit of pork at home. I was trying to learn how to cook a couple meals because I thought, you know, well, my wife's got a baby at home, I need to be able to, uh, earn, earn, you know, do a, chop a turn in and cook a meal if I need to and I'm not a great cook, my wife's amazing and I thought, oh, I'm going to make pork belly my dish and every time I cook pork belly, we both felt crooked. <laughs> And we figured out we got, we just figured out it wasn't uh, the cooking because I could eat, I could cook other dishes and not poison us, but the pork gave us stomach cramps and indigestion, and we felt really bogged down afterwards. It wasn't like eating beef; we just felt really light um, and you know energized and ready to go. The pork really brought us down, and we raised these pigs in a pretty unsophisticated way, and we ate them and we felt great afterwards. And we thought, you know, this is what it really started clicking with me about uh, different animal production systems, different breeds, uh, different inputs. And so then we got into pigs at the moment. Now I've got about 120 pigs on the farm right now. We're, we're hoping to process somewhere between 300 and 350 pigs this calendar year. I got into sheep uh, purely because the market bullied me into it. Um, you know, the sheep is very popular Protein in Australia, and they're, they're they're generally suited quite well to our climate. So just as I didn't want sheep, I didn't want to get into sheep, uh, but I kept getting asked when you're doing lamb, when you're doing lamb, and then I ran the economics on sheep, and I think sheep absolutely spank cattle on a on a balance sheet. So we got into sheep. We do bees, you know. Uh, we've got we've got about twenty five beehives on the farm for honey. We raised broiler, meat chickens, you know, they all sort of got added on and bolted on. So at the moment, we're leasing uh, three different pop- properties that are 100 acres each. Uh, the home farm is where we have all the pigs, all the broilers, all the layers, and, um, and you know, one of our mobs of cattle and the flock of sheep. But then the two leased properties both have mobs of cattle that we're backgrounding. You know, one's got cows that are gestating at the moment. Another one's got our wieners that we grow out for slaughter, and then... Uh, my wife and I—we haven't announced this at all, so this will be a uh, an exclusive for your podcast. But we've just uh, gone unconditional on a farm purchase, and we've we've purchased 150 acres, uh, about half an hour north of Aubrey, So we'll be moving up there in about a month with our family. I've got three young kids now, under six, and we'll be moving up there because at the moment, like we lease all these properties, but we live in town. So I'm gonna go up there and get some more cattle, get some more sheep, and 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 scale the business a bit
0: further. So you've, you've really um, expanded this farm and you mentioned how there are a lot of folks that started after you started and already stopped. What were the things that you did differently or was it a, a just a mental shift? Because I know also on your website, you've had the five pillars of Wolkee Farm. I didn't know if, yeah, just having that certain system in place, what were the differences that you think? Look, I
1: think I think the main difference as, to why people have uh, quit before we have it comes down to two things uh, one's resource access um, you know i think people have come in on a shoestring budget and realized that it doesn't matter really what your business is but you need capital you need equity you need cash flow you know any 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 business you can't really start from nothing you're not going to pull a salary out of a business to pay your to pay yourself keep for a business, you're starting with nothing. With um, so I've probably come in a little bit. Uh, I wasn't as naive in that sense, having been in business for a while, and uh, I, I underestimated how much I'd have to put in. I never thought I'd have to buy a butchery. You know, when I started the farm business, I put about a hundred thousand dollars into it, and I bought you know my first few cattle and and a few pigs and a and a uh, a built an eggmobile and I got a silo and I bought a buggy and you know I was about a hundred grand in, and the farm was ticking along just fine. Uh, on the small scale it was. It wasn't having to produce an income for me because I've got other businesses in town paying my way. Uh, You know, I was able to employ staff and get going. And then very, very soon it was apparent that the absolute bottleneck was processing, actually getting my animals butchered. Because here in Australia, you send your animal off to a state-certified abattoir for slaughter, but the the, the slaughterhouses don't do any cut-up for you. It has to come back to a local butcher, local burning room, and they do your cut-up for you. And the butchers that I was using, like one body of beef a month, and they didn't want to do any more than that. Uh, And I I knew it was going to be a mugs game, trying to use multiple different butchers to try to keep throughput coming through. And it was my biggest cost. You know, I I could buy a steer, uh, run it on the farm for 12 months to finish it, uh, send it for slaughter, and you could accumulate all those costs together. And the butchering at the local butcher was still the biggest part of the cost even after the acquisition of the animal the cost of running it the labor the minerals the lease land the the the, the slaughter fee everything the butchering costs more so we purchased the uh, butchery which is you know it's another few hundred thousand dollars that we um, tipped in and we couldn't run our business without it so I think you know one reason people fail is they're undercapitalized and the other reason is they're just not willing to put the hours in and work hard enough you know there's there's I, I helped a few people, you know, they wanted a bit of advice getting their their little egg business going. And then two, three months later, they're messaging me going, oh, you got no idea how much work it is. I'm thinking like, you've got 200 chooks. Like if it's, if it's taking you more than half an hour a day, you're doing, your, your system suck. And, and, you know, you're not going to get any sympathy from me about having to work hard. It's welcome to the real world. I think a lot of people, you know, they see some Instagram reels and it's 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 women in dresses running through long grass and um, everything is going to be beautiful when, when they've got chickens on their um, property and the reality is whether it's uh, below freezing outside or forty five degrees and you feel like your skin's going to melt off your face you've got to go and service your animals you know there's there's, there's labor that's required you know I'm regularly I regularly go home eat dinner, kiss the kids on the head and come back to the butchery and work till ten o'clock at night because we've got throughput that demands it so uh, you know there's skills and labor shortage here at the moment so I think you know, It's an equity problem. It's a cash equity and it's a labor equity problem as to why people fail.
0: So for the labor equity too, because that's a huge issue in America. Um, even the farm I worked on, they were severely understaffed and, uh, obviously that means you have to pick up all the work and with just the advancement of technology and how we grew up now to have the sense of going to college and then moving to a bigger city. And working a tech job, or now social media and TikTok and YouTube and all that has just exploded to where that's what a lot of people want to do. I'm curious if that's the similar culture too, to where it's hard to find help, especially from uh, the younger audiences, whether it be my generation or the the one after that.
1: Yeah, look, I've I've actually had no issues attracting labor. You know, I've got multiple different businesses, and, and you know, trying to find a bike mechanic really hard, trying to find a chef really hard, trying to find a Salesperson for the bike shop really difficult. Trying to find a butcher really difficult. But on the farm, uh, we actually get canvassed for work all the time because people want to get involved, uh, come and upskill on the farm, see what see what we're doing, and you know get that experience under their belt for their, their their own future plans or or whatever it is. The last few months in Australia, the labor's been very hard across the board. Now, even on the farm's been a little bit more challenging, uh, but generally it's not too bad and i think that's one thing that probably sets me up apart from a lot of other startups is i hired staff straight away and you know identified very early on the farming um, the the easy bit basically and you know that'll be to the disgust of every farmer out there and there's, there's there's no doubt that that farming isn't easy you know you're dealing with a lot of moving parts you've got live animals you've got in australia the, the weather is all over the place like we're basically we came out of 10 years of drought went into three years of flood and we're already in drought again, you know, it's, it's just all over the place. We don't have steady seasons. Uh, but if I want to grow thousand, two kilo chickens, or if I want to finish off, uh, 50 bodies of beef that are 280 kilos on the hook, I can do it. Uh, actually facilitating the processing and then finding customers to purchase it and then getting the meat to those customers. So, so that. The, the processing the sales and the freight logistics are super painful and i in a, a lot harder burdens a lot harder challenges so i identified that early on and staffed up and set up some systems on the farm put people on the farm to you know manage you know, daily chores and i got myself in the boning room i spent a lot of my time here in the butchery uh trying to massage those other you know parts of the business that just seemed to be a lot
0: bigger barriers So outside of hiring immediately at the beginning, because I mean, how I found you is through Twitter and just seeing everything that you share, that's just been so great. And also on your Instagram and TikTok, has that attracted others to want to visit and help and experience your farm as well? Because in terms of just trying to find avenues to incentivize others to even just visiting a farm, uh, yeah, just try, I'm just curious to hear what that's been like since really sharing everything on social media i think like you
1: know social media is
0: our uh it's our marketing uh for the farm and
1: we don't we don't treat it contentiously like there's no plan our whole thing's just just document you know if a sheep dies in the paddock and i slaughter it hanging it in a tree cut it up for dog meat i put a photo up and i tell people a bit of a story about what's going on you know we're, we're very transparent we share our wins and our losses and there's no there's no plan there's there's no funding it's just you know, if I don't post much, it's only because I'm super busy. When I'm posting heaps, I've probably got a bit more time up our sleeves. So the, the slow news days, people are probably missing out on more because there's probably more going on. But it's definitely, uh, you know, brought all of our customers to us. And it's definitely attracted uh, the majority of the workforce. Um, we, we have some people on the farm now and then that come along for work experience and they all find me through social media. I've actually been blown away with Twitter because I only uh, started tweeting about a year ago. Just when, um, Elon purchased it, I never was on Twitter at all. And then Elon bought it and I thought, you know, I've, I've got to be, uh, involved now because you know, he, he's, he's a good dude. I want to get in his corner. And, uh, you know, prior to that, my other social medias for the farm, Instagram, Facebook had, had three years of history on them and, and Twitter overtook all the followers in a few months, uh, which was, you know, and, and the actual connection part of Twitter has really blown me away networking with people but yeah you know it's it's super important for what we do because we don't have the budget or the uh, sophistication to launch uh, media campaigns and and um you know all all these sorts of things so just being able to reach people directly through sharing our stories vital
0: i agree and on the topic of just sharing your stories too can you expand on uh the the walkie farm flywheel and and yeah just each portion of that and and it's and just the importance of each one, that because that, they seem like it's a, your your key pillars of. Yeah, that's right.
1: There's a bit of a story behind this, but you know people can find the story in, in in any other podcast, and it's a bit long-winded, so I won't I won't um, drag it all up again. But essentially, I was nominated for um, Young Business Leader of the Year a few years ago, and uh, before I had the farm business, when I was just a bike shop, and I entered myself, and I lost. I didn't win and the reason I didn't win was because they said my mission statement, my business statement for the shop wasn't strong enough and we didn't have a business statement uh, because we sell bikes. There's no, you know, there's no altruistic um, environmental community conscience. Like we're just trying to make money selling bikes. Um, And so I made one up for the sake of the application and the feedback I got was, you know, great business, everything culture in the workplace is good, all this sort of stuff, but your mission statement sucks and And why I bring that up is the farm's got a really uh strong uh, mission statement which which we describe as our five pillars of production or our uh, flywheel of production and it wasn't you know the the analogy I'm trying to give i guess is it wasn't created it wasn't contrived. we didn't sit down and, and go right Owalkee farm needs a mission statement so everyone put their thinking cap on this has to it has to appeal to this type of consumer and and, and it has to be marketable. This literally just came out of hours in the paddock, labouring with my farm hands. Things going wrong, um, and then staff needing to be able to self-author how they handle those circumstances without. Like I don't like I don't like my phone uh, ringing with my staff calling me every fifteen minutes asking for permission or guidance on medial tasks, which used to be my life. I remember being in Taiwan. At a trade show for the bike shop many years ago and i got a phone call from my manager that a customer wanted to return a pair of cycling gloves you know 35 dollars gloves because the stitching had pulled uh but it was you know they'd owned them over a month and they were clearly used and i'm like why am i being bothered about a glove exchange like just fix the customer yeah. like so um and, and i didn't want like, our lease block some of them are out of phone reception so if they go down there and there's a cow stuck in a fence or there's a cow on the road or there's a cow with a stuck calf or whatever it might be you know they need to have a they need to uh, know intimately the values of the farm so that they can you know execute what needs to happen without having to drive half an hour back to reception to ask me permission or ask me guidance so with that long-winded intro the five pillars of production we call it a flywheel because Um, I believe they all feed into each other and the, and the farm gains momentum out of it. The first one's animal welfare. So if there's something wrong on the farm and the staff need to make a decision, the very first thing they need to uh, take into context is the welfare of the animal. So don't think about Jake's bottom line. Uh, Don't think about, you know, what's, if I do this in this situation, how's that going to affect the meat later on down the, down the track? You know, don't, think about the environment it's not the environment at the moment we've got an animal that's suffering or in trouble or or, or you know on the on the road or whatever so think about the welfare of the environment and for us welfare people have this idea that you know they're giving great welfare to their pet dog because they keep a big bowl of kibble filled up all the time and the poor dogs diabetic morbidly obese walking around with its stomach dragging on the ground because it's so fat from eating these you know ultra processed carbohydrate-based kibbles. And these people are thinking that they're showing all this love to their dog uh, by indulging its gluttony. And it's just simply not welfare. They're not respecting the nature of the animal. So welfare for us is species appropriate. So you need to take into account what the animal is, where it came from, and and where is it now? So an example of that, uh, let's say pigs. You know, pigs are forest-dwelling animals um, from Europe and so cooler climate heaps of shade omnivorous social but our pig production in the west they're in sheds they only ever see sunshine and fresh air the day they're on the truck when they're going to slaughter the very last day of their life they've got their teeth ground out they've got their tails cut off because they're so bored and understimulated that they'll eat each other um, if they if they're kept intact like that there's no natural matings it's all artificial insemination they're not social across age groups they're just social in their uniform lots Um, and i just i think that is just against everything that you know contextual welfare should be so our pigs are outside they're in the dirt um, they're wallowing they're rooting around in the soil Uh, there's different age groups mixed together all these sorts of things but then we also have to think about where they come from they came from a cooler climate with lots of shade so we build structures we plant trees um, we put out sprinklers for them on hot days to try to you know, mitigate that. So when we say animal welfare, it's about what is the animal's natural expression? Where did it come from? Where is it now? And understanding that umbrella, you know, doing the best you can to meet that animal's needs. Uh, the, the, the second one is environmental backbone. And so we do actually really care about our environment. Uh, we are environmentalists. We, we love the outdoors, the, the fertility in the soil is our, is our bank balance. It's our it's our next season's protein, and and we need to do everything we can to to you know jealously guard the assets of our farm. Uh, but I actually think you know looking after the environment is really simple. If you look after animals in the context of their natural expression, the environment's fine. So you know that's that's respecting. You know one one great example is having ruminant herbivores on your farm that are moving in their grazing cells all the time whether you want to call it regenerative grazing or cell grazing or holistic plant grazing whatever you want mimicking migratory patterns which these animals have been doing forever versus a feedlot where they're eating corn you know one's got a great environmental output sequesters carbon builds fertility has healthy animals and the other one is crap environmental output you you know you've got synthetically grown crops you're burning all the diesel to grow the crops you're, you're trucking the crops to the feedlot you've got all the cows crapping at one spot so you've got to have an effluent management plan you've got to burn more diesel and labor to get rid of the manure out of the feedlot you know the animals are getting sick etc um, etc et so they're being fed subtherapeutic antibiotics you know yada 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 but that whole environmental uh, catastrophe can be mitigated if you respect the natural expression of the ruminant herbivore and you keep them moving So it's actually it's not an environmental plan it's just respecting the animal and the environment responds brilliantly because shock horror animals are part of the environment and animals are the beginning of the fertility cycle uh so so that's why it's a flywheel if you look after the animal welfare number one the environment's a default it's you know enhancing environment is a byproduct of, of contextual animal welfare Step number three is we want to create healing food for our community. So just through the, uh, and, you know, I used to think maybe we're going to say nutrient-dense food, maybe we're going to say quality food. It's like, no, nah, grow old pear. I believe our food heals people. And, you know, the the plural of anecdote is data. And we don't have great data on this because no one, you know, I don't know, I can't do everything. You know, I welcome anyone that wants to come, uh, any university or, or any medical group that wants to come and, you know, nutritionally test our food, do studies on consumers and their health. You know, I'm sure we could put people and produce together to make that happen. But, you know, I've got my cards full and I can't do everything. But all I know is I get a lot of anecdotes. And to me, a lot of anecdotes is as good as data because it's the collective noun version of it and i hear all the time about how much people how much better people feel they're not throwing up anymore they don't have indigestion anymore they've lost weight they don't have eczema the amount of women that come to me and say that their kids are allergic to eggs and they get eczema skin rash until they eat our eggs and then there's no problems and the skin rash goes away just blows my mind so i don't know why i just know it happens and so we want to produce that for our community and i believe if you look after the animal in context to its natural expression You've got an environmental backbone and you're, and you, you know, building the commons on your farm. And that includes not using herbicides and pesticides and fungicides. You know, we're an organic based farm that the quality food is, again, it's a byproduct of that system. Number four is we want to build community. So we're super transparent through social media. We do a lot of uh, community days on the farm, farm tours, spring fairs, uh, you know, uh, keynote sessions. We're hoping in the future to be able to facilitate weddings and all sorts of things on our new property. Uh, so we want to be a socially active farm uh, that's transparent and open. And then number five is we want to make profit. You know, at, at, after we've done everything else and left nothing on the table, we've done everything to the best of our ability. We price our produce to give ourselves uh, the profit we need to not only be viable to, but to be able to bankroll becoming uh, larger and scaling. And, you know, and then the whole thing repeats.
0: Awesome. That was really great. Thank you for sharing. And... It was really interesting because I was vegan for two and a half years, and I noticed this trend with just the huge push of plant-based and pinning animal agriculture on climate change. It's just really interesting, just all, all the terminologies just tossed around for people that never even worked on a farm, have never really talked to farmers or ranchers, because it's clear as day how much folks like you care about everything you're doing. The fact, even just going back to the first point of that wheel, taking out profits and and all of that, you really thinking about the actual health of the animal, ensuring that they have everything they need. Um, yeah, that's just very telling. And that's why any listeners that have vegan friends or whatnot, I think just that whole entire clip would just be great to share because this is very common from the, a lot of the folks that i talk talked to and I've worked with. They truly care about the animals that and the land that they steward. Uh, I mean, you're, you're sacrificing so much. And then at the end of the day, yes, you need a profit. But that's just because without that, then this goes under and you're not providing the food. And and then the community suffers from all of that. Um, well, you know, that's, a, so yeah, that's, that's another horrible story. Really great. And thank you for sharing. And then on the top...
1: Well, you know, I was just no, going to touch going. on Ryan that, um, that we're, we're unap- unapologetically pro-profit. You know, p- people feel like they As need to should. justify. Like, I watch, I watch re- regenerative farmers and direct-to-market farmers get on their soapbox and, and explain why their eggs cost the way they are and say, look, we're not actually making that much money. We're just scraping by. We're just trying to produce food for you and stuff. And, you know, that's a nonsense. If If you, you should be, like, making money. You should be you know setting your family up i don't don't want to scrape by i want to build an empire i I want to be wealthy i'm not interested in subsistence farming um you know and part of that is not gouging your customers for price i'm working really hard at the moment like my one of my goals in australia is to be the best value direct to market uh, retail producer i don't like I, I joke all the time that our food is air quotes expensive. There's a certain price tag that comes along with it, but all my effort is is put towards uh, pushing the price down so I can sell more of it and, you know, make more money through volume and scale. Um, you know, a lot of people feel like they need to apologize for that. And I just think that that's um, it's, it's a socialist agenda. The fact that we need to, you know, apologize for creating value. Why would you apologize for creating value?
0: especially whenever again it goes back to we die without food so this is the most important uh, aspect of civilization essentially but on the topic because you were mentioning to uh, just direct to, to market but then also how going back to searching for grass-fed and you and you realize a lot of them were just going with the commodities market so I guess can you just shed light upon yeah just the commodities market and why a lot of those farms were doing that versus what you're doing and the the direct to to market and the challenges that you face with all of that.
1: Yeah. Well, there's there's heaps of reasons why Ryan, you know, pick your poison really like a lot of farmers sell into the commodity market because it's there because they've always been doing it uh, because they might have 500 weaned calves for the season and that's their crop and they can just get rid of them on one day and not have to worry about it again. Um, You know, trying to direct market that amount of, uh produce is a a huge undertaking they would they would they would need their own boning room they need multiple butchers and you know i i encourage these people to have a look at it and uh you know i always tell people you don't have to start with your whole herd just do just set yourself a goal to do five this year but the the reality is for a farmer who was let's say you know let's say they're producing 500 weaner calves a year the effort to put into direct marketing um, five of them would, would be a huge amount of effort compared to the ROI. Like it'd be a real labour of love, and you know, I'll, I'll defend that. I think it's worth it if you can if you can do five the first year, learn a few lessons, do twenty five the next year, and fifty the next year, and you know, grow into that enterprise. I think you know over time you you're building real resiliency um, into your business. But a lot of these people are don't they don't want to deal with the public. That's why they're farmers. They want to be out in the paddock with the cattle. Uh, maybe they don't have the capital, um, they, they don't have the time, they don't see they don't see the value in it. So, you know, the industry for better or worse is, is set up how it is. And a lot of people just don't have the inclination to go against it. But uh, at the same time, you know, they're very happy to complain when the market crashes. Last year in Australia was record all time highs. The price of beef and lamb at, over the hook was uh, extraordinarily high. I recall many farms saying we're being paid too much. This isn't sustainable. We shouldn't be getting this much for our beef. We shouldn't be getting this much for our lamb. And now 12 months later, uh, things are literally worthless. People are shooting and burying animals on their farm because they're not even worth trucking them to the abs. They will sell them at the abs, abattoir or the marketplace. And the cost of trucking them to the yards will outweigh the return that they will get so it's cheaper to shoot them on the farm and pile them up uh, and and you know that's not true for all animals but if you're going to sell an old mutton or a ram lamb or a store cow or something you know that's not a prime animal they're they're, they're 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 worthless because the market's flooded everyone's it's a oversupply problem because of the drought setting in and some other policy changes here in australia and these a lot of these same personalities are online crying about how poor it is And I was trying to get them to, you know, last 12 months ago, 18 months ago, when they're on the gravy train, I was trying to encourage them to sell direct. And they're running their numbers, go, why would I bother? All that extra effort, I'm only going to make an extra $20 a lamb. I'm saying, look ahead two years, the market's going to crash because it always does. It's up and down. It's the same as the housing market. It's the same as the stock market. It's the same as every other market. It's boom and bust. And when the good times are rolling, you need to be investing to make your business more defensible because the reality is all these commodity farmers are price takers. They 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 have to buy the inputs at the price that's quoted, and then they have to take whatever price for their crop at the end of the year. Uh, so the gambling, a lot of them are gambling in in a lot of ways, and I'm not interested in that. I, we're price makers, not price takers. You know, it comes with its own set of challenges. But you know, I've been in business long enough that I don't know, I don't I, I don't have the appetite for putting 12 months of work in and then gambling my income.
0: I'm curious, while the, the huge boom and then the, the the huge crash, what was going on, I guess, on your end as you're doing direct to, to market? Was that really affecting your business as a whole?
1: It's not really affecting me at all. Um, it, it's actually been great for me because animals, you know, when I purchased the bulk of my livestock, you know, sort of two years to 18 months ago, I bought my first lot of cows, I bought my sheep. I purchased everything at the absolute height of the market and I and I paid dearly. Uh, for for animals and put and tied up a lot of cash flow and equity in livestock, and now that it's all tanked, I'm buying heaps more because I'm trying to dollar cost average my entry point. Uh, my my first use that I purchased my female sheep for used for breeding cost me 260 each. Uh, I just bought another 50 use and they cost me 25 dollars each. Now the quality is not quite the same. You know, the use I got a, a I got a year ago are, are a, bit of a better quality animal uh, but they're not 10 times better ryan you know uh, they're not worth 10x so it, you know i bought 40 head of cattle the other day at yeah. average 92 cents a kilo live weight again you know they're not the best animals i went to the store sale and i bought the skinny cows and the bottle calves and, and things but you know I was, I was buying i was buying 300 kilo heifers you know so heifers that are almost ready to join for 300 bucks you know so Hmm. For me, it's it's been it's been fantastic. There's a tiny bit of price pressure starting to come in because the butchers and the supermarkets are just starting to drop their prices a little bit because the pricing of the markets come down. But they're not dropping it much. You know, sheep's dropped, you know, a huge amount, and the supermarkets have come back seven percent in price. So it's really not affecting me that much.
0: Hmm. So that's really interesting because I'm also really curious. There's just so much going on on your end. So you've got I mean, the new land that you're just mentioning and, and potentially wanting to do weddings for that, you've got the butchery, which is where you're at currently, and just trying to continue to expand on the farm you've got with all the different types of animals. How do you go about strategizing and just yeah managing all of that?
1: Well, look, I, you know, I'll be really transparent and I would, I would not suggest people do what I do and have five, six different enterprises on their farm and spread themselves across that. Uh, I I'm glad that I've done it because I now have a pretty good handle on what's involved and and what it's like to raise broilers, to to have a lame flock, to have sheep, cattle, pigs. Uh, but now Walkie Farm is at a real sort of crossroads moment where we we need to, you know tighten our belt and figure out what our hero product is and, and get really good at one thing and, and be, you know, put our eggs in that box get, and market it and hit scale, um, hit economies of um, scale and, and make things more efficient and be able to pass that price uh, drop down to our consumer so we can really get some numbers on the ground. Uh, I don't know what that is because each each animal, each enterprise has a pros and cons, Um uh, but you know, I've got a lot of lists. I've got a lot of checklists. I've got a a pretty tight schedule. We run a Slack group, uh, where on our Slack page for us, all our staff are in it, all the farmhands and the butchers and my wife and I, and and our web developer, and everyone's in the Slack group, each enterprise and each property has its own channel and there's constant communication. Like I'm always asking my staff to overshare with me. I, I, I would, I would rather have too much information at my fingertips than not enough uh but you know it's it's for most people where they're at the resources they have the appetite for workload they have i would think a hero product make broilers your hero product make beef your hero product whatever it is and then have a have a value add hero product so um, let's say beef is your hero product have a value add hero product. So do your rendered tallow and then have a secondary product do your broilers or do your eggs that you can direct market to your beef customers and have that as a as a, as a supplementary, uh, you know, having all four, you know, I love, I love having everything on the farm. And, you know, part of the reason we do it is because we eat it ourselves. We want this for our family uh, and yeah. our community. I, I don't think it's the right thing for most people. I, I don't think people can handle it.
0: It's kind of a little transition, but on the topic, just of family. And I know you said you have three little ones. Um, what's just been that experience been like raising a family on a farm? Cause did you grow up on a farm?
1: I didn't. No, I grew up in town. My parents purchased that 100 acre, 110 acre property uh, when I was about 15. And by the time they had a house in it, I moved out there and I lived with them sort of three or four years, but I wasn't really present at home. You know, I had my license and I was, you know, I had a van, so I'd sleep sleep in my van in my mate's driveway and and, and sleep out at the river and, you know, just cruise around a lot. And uh, if dad ever wanted help putting animals into the yards or something, I'd begrudge it and i and, and I, I, I i thought it was a, a you know i was happy to help my father but it wasn't the work i picked for myself I had, I had no interest in that so didn't really have that experience and still don't to a degree like i spend a lot of time on the farm farming but i still live in town with my children we haven't had the opportunity to, to actually you know raise our kids which is a month away Today's october 27th we settle on november 27th and our farm our family's going to be out there uh you know and and my eldest will remember town life. He's six, I'll tell you, but my youngest two won't. You know, they'll everything they'll know will be farm life, which I'm excited about. You know, I, I've always wanted kids. Ever since high school, I wanted kids, and I knew I wanted a bunch of kids. And I'd think about how I would raise my children and what my family would be like and how we would all sit at the dinner table and have dinner together without the TV on, and we'd talk with each other. And, you know, we'd say grace for our meals. And I, it wasn't... Till later on in life that I realized that wasn't really a normal thing for teenage boys to be thinking about. I spent more time thinking about my future kids than my future wife. Uh, I'm very family centric and, and and I love breeding and uh, I want to have heaps of kids, you know, God willing, whatever my wife can handle. It's a bit of an awkward thing to talk about because my, my wife gets a bit uh, e- e- embarrassed like when I talk like this, but you know, it's, it's a huge undertaking for women. They are sacrificing Uh, their body and their health and their time and their mobility and their self um, and raising these children. And it's just the most beautiful gift. And she's given me three and I'm eternally grateful. And if that's it, that's fine. If I get another five, I'd be absolutely stoked.
0: (laughs) That's funny, but that's also a great point about the dinner table because the farm I was on, we every day for lunch, one of the, the farm hands would go in and cook every lunch for everybody. And then for dinner, um, it was usually the wife, and then we'd all be at the dinner table. I just remember the first night I was there, and no TV, no technology. The kids are running around arguing, just mess is going on, but we're still having that awesome conversation. And I reflect, and that was the first time I experienced that in probably 10 plus years, and how valuable that is. And so I can only imagine once you're actually on the farm with your family in the next month, uh, just moving forward with all that it's it's so awesome and we've yeah we've really lost that especially with technology and just I mean in America it's also just very hard to have family together at, at dinner table now because of cost of living and, and jobs and all all of that jazz uh, so it's definitely I guess a lost art per se besides on the farm and then also just adding to the the level of the fact that not only are you eating at the dinner table, you're eating the food that you raised. And that just adds a whole level of meaning, too. Because, again, just I remember being out in the fields picking all the produce and then processing the chickens and, and just eating all that. Uh, it's, the, the feeling is pretty indescribable. I, I don't know how to describe it other than it's the most connected I've ever felt to the world and the natural world.
1: Yeah, look we, we love it. And, that, and that's why we do it. You know, it's, it's hard to switch off. I'm, a, I'm horrible for it. I've always got my phone in my hand. My wife's always got to remind me, Jake, we're at the dinner table. Put your phone down. Yes, dear. Sorry, dear. Um, you know, being present with you, with your children and your family, you have to take stock every now and then and, and, and realize, you know, why do you do it? Maybe a lot of people don't know why they do it. You know, I am, um, I want to build an estate. And, and I don't want to build an estate for the sake of the buildings. I want to build an estate uh, in, in, the, in the sense of a family unit. And, you know, I've got a pretty tight family. Like my grandparents still live here in town. My grandpa does deliveries for me and helps on the farm. And, you know, we're very active in, in each other's life. But, you know, I still think that there's a way to... Like I look at things um, like the Kennedys, the American political family and you know whatever your opinion of the kennedys is 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 here or there but uh, i recently saw a video with uh the current presidential candidate at his uh beachside home you know beautiful big villas and it was like a it was like a uh golf green but there was three or four enormous properties and the kennedys as a family have lived in that estate for something like four generations and it's you know, I don't know how it's set up, but they've obviously sure they've all got their differences and I'm sure the family squabbles, but they're all on the same block together and it keeps getting handed down and it, it doesn't, at the surface, it doesn't look like it's been blown up by um, wheels being contested and divorces and, and, you know, all this somehow they've held it together. And I think that's an absolutely beautiful thing. You know, we, there's so much conversation in the media and in, in our world about how hard it is to to earn a living and and minimum wage and cost of living and commute time and all this sort of stuff. But the divorce rate's half, and every time you get divorced, you're halving all your assets and and you're halving your earning potential. Like, you know, the worst financial thing you'll ever do in your life is is split up from your spouse. You know, I'm I'm pro-family. It's better for everyone.
0: I agree. So the last topic I have on the topic of economics, because I know you're a big Bitcoiner yourself. I was curious, um, Yeah, what was the catalyst to, to you being all in for Bitcoin? And especially because I know you accept that for your business. And that's, that's a huge leap because rather than accepting fiat, um, yeah, this is just brand new technology and you're accepting that for your business. So I was curious to just hear more on that.
1: I've always, I've always tried to, I guess, put a bit of time into understanding economics, uh, listening to guys like Thomas Sowell, uh, Milton Friedman, uh, Peter Schiff. You know, I, I, I tried, you know, I'm a, I'm a businessman. I'm not an investor. I'm not a speculator. I, 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 you know, I'm trying to buy for one, sell or two. I'm a merchant. I, I look at myself as a trader sitting on a rug, you know, swapping goods with someone else, just trying to do value for value. But I became very interested in gold. I'm looking at our money going; they just print more of it. It's all when they lend, when the banks lend money, they create money to lend money. You know, money is debt. I'm looking at it all going. This is very confusing. Uh, this sort of uh, doesn't seem to be great to me. And, and listening to guys like Peter Schiff and um, researching the gold standard, it looked to me that money had never been so good as to when it was as hard as gold. And during COVID, when it was all lockdowns and you couldn't go to the supermarket and and everything was shut, you weren't allowed out of your house, you know, we we sort of really copped it here in Australia. A good friend of mine and I were were messaging a lot and, you know, we were bored for lack of a better word. We couldn't do all the things we used to do. So we both decided that we'd put up a few hundred bucks and get onto one of the, um, you know, day trading apps and we'd trade uh, shit coins and see who could make the most money just just trying to get on pump and dumps and you know, I made a few thousand dollars on Dogecoin and he made a few thousand dollars on this one and we were shorting them and it was just gambling. It was unadulterated gambling. We we knew that these things <laughs> had no inherent value. But it became clear to me as we were researching these pump and dumps that not all these cryptocurrencies were equal. And and it was obvious that Bitcoin uh was was a cut above the rest. But I still never got into it at that stage. You know, I made a few thousand bucks and I pulled all my money out or whatever i did with it i don't even remember and then a few months later in the butchery here uh, i was doing a job custom processing for a guy out of melbourne and i was packing his orders for him and one of the columns had payment type and it was fiat fiat uh, bitcoin trade whatever and it was btc and i called him and i'm like are you accepting bitcoin for some of this meat he said, "Yeah, absolutely. Like that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to set up a direct to consumer uh, Bitcoin model. I'm like, tell me more about of it and about it. And that was my orange pilling. You know, we had this 40 minute conversation, and I got off the phone with more questions than I previously had because it's not easy to explain to people. You, you know, you got to mine the blocks. You got nodes. You got sats, which are a part of a Bitcoin." um you know you've got the lightning network there's so much going on but i knew there was something in it and it, yeah. and it made a lot of sense to me and I, you know i went off and listened to some podcasts and try to get educated and i thought i've got to be involved in this and and when i started getting involved you know the the, the bitcoin community and the, and the people that are in that are in it you know are a standout to me i, I just i love the crowd i love the technology but i love the people uh, and so we, when I got my website going, because my website's only about six months old, you know, prior to then, if you wanted to buy something, you had to message me on Facebook or email me, basically, there was no interface, apart from my, my 24-7 Butchery uh, members, only Butchery behind me, but the website got going and I said to web developers, can you make it so I can accept Bitcoin? And they're like, are you sure? I said, yes. They said, any other cryptocurrencies? I said, absolutely not. You know, just Bitcoin, thank you. And we and we plugged it <laughs> in. So I get multiple orders a week where people, you can just go on my website, volkyfarm.com.au, go to the order now page, add a 10 kilo beef box for, you know, 300 bucks, whatever it is to your shopping cart, $400. Uh, and and um, on the exit, you can select uh, Fiat or Bitcoin. And then the QR code comes up and, and you send it through on chain. And that's that. And it's great. It's working really well. I'm getting quite a few sales, so I'm probably getting the right amount. If I got any more than I would do, I'd, I'd, I'd have to probably liquidate more than I'd like. So at the moment, I'm using it as a bit of a treasury. You know, a lot of people are saying, you know, what do you do with it? Well, you know, sometimes I sell it because I need fiat to pay bills. Uh, I do have some expenses. I can pay Bitcoin. Uh, I won't get into what they are because that has, I guess, other implications for other parties. I don't know what they, what they do with how they get it. Um, but at the, at the same time it's it's a, it's a treasury you know a lot of businesses have assets that they that they stockpile you know for 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 whatever reason so that's what we're we're doing and and you know it, at the moment
0: it's it's working really well that was going to be my, you answered my next question because i i have bitcoin for my business too and i've had only a couple orders but i plan to just keep it as a treasury the same as yourself with that being said is there i guess before we wrap it in all up is there any last comments or any topics that you would like to talk about look i think we've i think we've covered all the fun stuff all the fun stuff really did animal
1: welfare we did economics you know um parting words is we 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 buy the future we deserve vote (laughs) with your dollar
0: i like that a lot and you know one of the Um, one of the things people
1: talk about it and i don't i think we'll be preaching to the converted with your podcast ryan but i come up against all the time the cost of eating a high protein you know organic meat diet and my son and i were in sydney the other day went up to sydney to visit dr jalal khan uh otto's getting some mouth work done and we got up and we had breakfast and we had two uh soft boiled eggs each and we were full for breakfast and we came home and if you bought my eggs my eggs are top of the tree you can barely find eggs more expensive than mine here in Australia. They're $12 a dozen. You know, maybe you'll get some biodynamic certified, whatever, for thirteen fifty or something. My eggs are right up there. Uh, and two eggs for breakfast each was 4 bucks. You know, who's complaining about a $4 breakfast to feed two people, get you through to lunchtime? I hear people complaining about the uh, cost of eggs in the supermarket, but the drive-through at McDonald's, which is open 24-7, is always back up around the block what's your, what's what's a i don't know what a mcmuffin with a hash browns worth in the morning but i guarantee you it's more than two dollars
0: agreed And it always goes back to just the conversation of i mean this is why i love bitcoin it forces you to think long term uh, i mean it just completely ch- changes the time preference because you might be buying the cheaper quality food but you're not thinking long term of just the consequences that you could t- potentially be facing from making those decisions because then you still might feel like crap and then you have to go to the doctor and then they obviously just band-aid everything and those come at a cost rather than really thinking about your health and what you're eating and paying up front because it is more expensive to buy these products, but it's more nutrient dense going back to that. And then it literally makes you feel better and in the long run you'll be much more healthy. So you're not paying for these extra costs. Um yeah, it's always just yeah. how we view all of this.
1: Well, you're You're absolutely right. You know, you're you're investing in your future health, you're trying to protect yourself from medical expenses, time sick on the couch, premature death, disease, all this sort of stuff. Um, But, you know, I I don't even think for 90% of the population, we even need to get to that point of the argument. The fact that all the bars and all the clubs have people spilling out of them, they're so full and they're selling cocktails for $23 a piece. And then people complain about the price of grass fed beef. You know, it's just an absolute nonsense. You could buy a day's worth of protein for the price (laughs) of one cocktail. You know, people spend $300 on a pair of designer jeans and they've already got degenerate holes ripped in the knees, you know, like my wife, my wife was recently the bridesmaid, one of the bridesmaids to my sister. My sister got married two weeks ago. So she went and got her nails. All the bridesmaids had to go and get their fingers and their nails done as a group. So they all matched, right? It's the first time my wife's ever gone and got her nails done. $85 to get her fingers and her nails done. <laughs> and she's sitting in there and all these women, as she's listening to the chit-chat of all these women that are in there every fortnight, spending almost $100 a fortnight. So you can do your nails at home. You could buy a bottle of nail, you know. And I know it's all not the yeah. same, and it, but it's a priority thing. Twelve dollars for a dozen organic yep. eggs. Or you or or you know, that'll, that'll last you a week. It's just it's just beyond belief. Like our priorities are completely stuffed. And um you know I've I've got a lot of customers that make enormous sacrifices within their families to keep my protein in their fridge and freezer. And I'm 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 extremely grateful and I'm very proud of them for Priorities they have in their life, and when I see that, you know, I go out of my way to offer combos and bulk discounts and, and 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 different things to these families because I know, you know, how how much they value it. So it makes me more motivated to you know help it help make it accessible for them.
0: That's awesome. Well, to all the listeners, then I guess where can they find you at?
1: Yeah, I'm on X, Twitter, at Jake Walkie, W O L K I, Walkie Farms on Facebook, Instagram, our website. I said the URL before. You know, I'm very accessible. If people want to DM me or call me or email me, I'm 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 pretty much an open book. If people want to get in touch,
0: Um, yeah, not hard to find. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Jacob, for joining. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right, have a good one, y'all.